and domestically like McCarthyism. There was a lot of Christianity to it. There was okay. a lot of like communism is unchristian. There was a po- at a popular level. Welcome back to the Catrone Zone. It's been a couple of weeks. Um, I hope you had a good holiday. We're here, of course, with Chris Catrone, the last Marxist, everyone's favorite track coach. How are you doing, Chris? How's your How was your holiday? Good. Um, no, I've been doing okay. You know, it's wrapping up towards the end of the academic semester here, so it's been a little busy. I've been busy as well uh but i i thanksgiving was my is my favorite holiday maybe before we dive in on the main subject i could ask you as the last can i say happy thanksgiving yeah thanksgiving's canceled too you know yeah well i'm that's what i was gonna ask you but thanksgiving go ahead well as the last marxist is it acceptable for me to enjoy thanksgiving should i not celebrate thanksgiving or how would a marxist think of thanksgiving well, there's just one answer to that question, Abraham Lincoln. Hmm. He established Thanksgiving. And so it's it's bound up with the reunification of the United States after the Civil War. Mm-hmm. Um, so it had some, you know, prior background, but in terms of the official holiday and the regularization of it, that's Abraham Lincoln. So, of course, Marxists would be able to fully endorse Thanksgiving. Oh. Just read anything that Marx and Engels wrote about Abraham Lincoln. And so okay. we have it we have it on authority from Marx and Engels themselves, from Marx himself. Mm-hmm. Right? In the period when he was writing Das Kapital. So there's no question of Marx being a mature thinker. Mm-hmm. Marx definitely celebrated Thanksgiving. Right. <laughs> so so um what was the point for of Thanksgiving? you know, uh, according to Abraham Lincoln, how you said it was about unifying the country. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and I assume that it had to do with mending uh, damage and fissions that had arisen through the civil war, you, you know, but also accepting the new uh, freedoms that had been established through the civil sure, war. Sure, With malice towards none. Right. Mm-hmm. So like we know what Abraham Lincoln's attitude was um, at the end of the Civil War, um, mm-hmm. meaning that he wanted to move forward, but he wanted to kind of recast American history. You know, we know the Gettysburg Address mm-hmm. um, that, you know, government of by and for the people shall not perish from the earth, because at that time, the United States was one of the very few democratic republics in the world. France was the second empire under Napoleon III, Louis Bonaparte, who Marx had a lot to say about in various mm-hmm. writings. Um, and, uh, you know, England's the constitutional monarchy, the United Kingdom. Mm-hmm. And so uh, what did that leave? Maybe Switzerland? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so, you know, the fate of the United States in the Civil War was the fate of democracy on a world scale, on a world historic and global scale, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, in terms of like a national holiday, besides, you know, the obvious ones of the 4th of July, you know, um, Thanksgiving. Uh, now, you know, what I should say about, you know, because people are always there to say, 
What about the Native Americans, right? So Thanksgiving's been canceled in favor of uh, a kind of, I actually read an article, right? The article said um, Thanksgiving should be renamed as thanks-taking and as truth-giving. So George Orwell sounds like a insufferable holiday at that point. Yes, but George Orwell, <laughs> George, like those those phrases are straight out of George Orwell's 1984 lexicon, I think, mm -hmm. or or Huxley's Brave New World lexicon. You know, thanks taking, truth giving. You know, um, like these kind of neologisms that that sound plausible as English at one level, but at another level are completely you know, counterintuitive. And yeah, thanks. Thanks. Taking is, is really not good. Uh, how yeah. do you take thanks? And, and, and no, thanks, no, thanks I'm for gonna... taking, not thanks for giving, but thanks for taking like, thanks native Americans oh, from you. Thanks. So, it, so, but at Thanksgiving, we give thanks is the idea. You don't take thanks at Thanksgiving. So I imagine someone would go in right. and roll their, you know, uh, right wing uncle. Take right. Thank you, Uncle. I took taking your wallet. That kind of uh -huh. that kind of thing. Oh, taking. sure. That would be reparations or you know popular <laughs> yeah. justice. You know, like um, no. This is all you know uh, cultural revolution, Red Guard type stuff, right? This is what we're dealing with now. The right is correct about this. Yeah. You know, we are in living in the middle of a cultural revolution. The Red Guards are are afoot, mm -hmm. and they're coming for you. They're coming for all of us. You know. And they're coming for Thanksgiving. Well, happy holidays anyway. And and I enjoyed Thanksgiving. And, and you know, but what about the, okay, what about the Native Americans at the time? What about the Native Americans? Well, you know, um, obviously a lot of atrocities have been committed against the Native Americans already by that point in history. Mm -hmm. But I like to point out that really what we would now uh, consider to be the genocide of the Native Americans. You know, if we leave aside smallpox, if we leave aside the fact that people in the Western Hemisphere didn't have immunity to diseases from the Eastern Hemisphere, mm -hmm. it's one of the reasons why African slaves were useful is that they weren't going to die of any European diseases because Africa and Europe and Asia had been in contact for thousands of years, unlike the Western Hemisphere. So if we leave aside the smallpox devastation, the devastation from European diseases, um, then when you're thinking about like genocidal policy towards the Native Americans, it's really a late 19th century thing. In other words, when did the Native Americans really get squeezed out? When do they, when are they left behind historically? Such that, you know, Adam Smith for one and others, you know, um, even though Thomas Jefferson, you know, people will point to the fact that, you know, he's like, well, if they continue to make war against us, then we'll just have to wipe them out. But Thomas Jefferson, you know, actually liked the Native Americans. He, he admired them and he expected them to rebound, as did Adam Smith, rebound from the impact of European colonization um, to be able to participate in bourgeois society through trade and commerce and labor that they were going to uh you know, recover from the trauma of colonialism, of European colonization. Now, why didn't that happen? Capitalism, right? Remember the answer to every question is, uh, it's like the church lady on Saturday Night Live. Could it be Satan? Satan? Could it be <laughs> capitalism? Right. 
right? And, um, you know, that biological racism, genocidal policies of all kinds, um, you know, throughout the world, the late 18th century is really when that starts to happen, right? And uh, that's true of the Native Americans as well in the United States. And not necessarily, like, intentionally, right? So there is a certain amount of intentionality to policies, but there's also just the effect of capitalism. Capitalism is devastating. And capitalism, you know, of course, industri the Industrial Revolution gives a second life to slavery. You know, why the Founding Fathers thought slavery might die out of its own accord and why it did in the northern states. Um, they didn't anticipate the Industrial Revolution and how the Industrial Revolution would create not only a demand for raw materials, such that cotton was king in a way that wasn't the case before in the South. And also, you know, things that we associate with the horrors of colonialism, like the Belgian Congo, you know, rubber harvesting, that's all driven by the industrial revolution. That's all driven by industrial capitalism. Mm -hmm. um, and so we, you know, it's, it's, it's problematic for us to telescope history and to turn it into all one thing and to say, okay, well, look at what happened to African-Americans. Look at what happened to Native Americans. It must have been the intention of the Europeans, of the whites from the beginning, right? And, you know, you can find evidence of that. But really, historically, it's important to mark the advent of capitalism as changing the the game, changing the, the ground, changing the circumstances fundamentally mm -hmm. in a way that made it impossible for um, slavery to die out, for, for blacks to even recover after the emancipation, right? In other words, there would be an expectation after the emancipation that, um, you know, blacks could just simply become full participants in America. Mm -hmm. um, what that neglects is that the South was underdeveloped and the South was going to remain underdeveloped and was going to be a zone of special exploitation for industrial capitalism, mm -hmm. right? Um, in a way that it wasn't going to kind of even out, you know, so the Abraham Lincoln view of things is limited. It's a bourgeois view. And like I said, Marx and Engels admired Abraham Lincoln for his bourgeois democracy viewpoint. Mm -hmm. But, you know, he's no Marxist, Abraham Lincoln, of course not. In other words, he's resuscitating the spirit of the American founding for the second founding that comes as a result of the North's victory in the Civil War. But he's not able to see the problem of capitalism. It, it had already manifested in the United States, but really secondarily, it's really after the Civil War that you get the rapid industrialization of the United States. Mm -hmm. And that's when the Industrial Revolution really comes to the United States. Um, before that, the effects of the Industrial Revolution are on the U.S. as a kind of backwater hinterland for European industry. Mm -hmm. Right. There is some domestic industry, but you don't get the rise of the U.S. as an industrial power until after the Civil War. Um, mm. And, you know, I mean, it, people will say, and again, they kind of collapse history and telescope it. They'll say, well, the North won because it was industrial. To a certain extent, yes. 
Um, but I would emphasize the North's ability to politically muster the ability to defeat the South. In other words, the fact that the North is more liberal democratic, more bourgeois, is able to get the population, its population on board with this war effort in a way that the South never thought necessary and never was able to do, you know. Um, and so it's not just, oh, well, the North could manufacture artillery faster than the South. That's true. But ultimately, I would I would look at it the way Marx and Engels looked at it, which is as a political process. And, you know, this is why they could say Abraham Lincoln is like the true son of the American working class and this kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. And, and no, like he's more a petty bourgeois type person in terms of his background and in terms of like who he was. He's a lawyer. Um, but nonetheless, they could kind of say Abraham Lincoln's able to marshal the northern proletariat to his cause. Mm -hmm. And therefore, it's our cause. Right now, what's interesting about this, you know, we've been talking the last several times about Israel-Palestine. Mm -hmm. And, you know, people will say, well, we should support Hamas because Marx and Engels supported Abraham Lincoln. Don't! Like, they really go there. And I'm like, uh, you know, in other words, Marx and Engels had no problem supporting capitalist politicians. So what's wrong with you, Catron? What can mm. support Hamas? And it's like, well, there are capitalist politicians and there are capitalist politicians. And there's also the historical process. And there's the historical moment. Mm -hmm. Right. And so where does the Civil War fit within world history? Where does it fit within American history? Where does a figure like like Abraham Lincoln come from? Well, of course, he comes from the Republican Party, which was the abolitionist party. Mm -hmm. It's why when he's elected, the South immediately secedes because they know. Mm. Right. And so it's just very different from a crazy fascistic Islamist right wing terrorist organization like Hamas. And you know, they are all those things. I'm sorry, you can't you can't ignore that. You know, they have a fundamentally right wing politics of like dividing people by ethnicity, by religion, and mm. and consolidating their politics through killing, right? Through through killing the others who are not themselves, not Arab Muslims, and also through the martyrdom of their own people their their own their own people right which is of course a very capitalist attitude that kind of nationalism mm -hmm. you know the people of gaza belong to hamas to do with as they please why should we accept any of that right it's very different from abraham lincoln who had to be reelected during the civil war right and had to do things that were constitutionally questionable but have them be ratified through his re-election. You know, the Lincoln movie, Steven Spielberg. Mm -hmm. Steven Spielberg knows history better than the fucking left. <laughs> you know, the Tony Kushner screenplay for Lincoln is great. Otherwise, you know, I don't really like Tony Kushner. Otherwise, particularly Jewish Voices for Peace. He's one of the mm -hmm. founders of that organization. But, you know, because he's abject. Angels in America is a little bit abject. It's a little bit, it's a little bit much for me. I can't quite suppress my gag reflex to that extent, but Lincoln, you know, and so when his cabinet is like, you know, you've been doing these unconstitutional things, he's like, well, I put it to the people. Did they approve or not approve? Hmm. 
in that respect, I mean, Marx and Engels avoided saying so, but of course, Abraham Lincoln is a kind of Bonapartist figure in American history. He is the birth of the imperial presidency, right? He is. Um, and, you know, it is the consolidation of like the federal government over state governments, like that happens through the Civil War. But really it happens through the Republican Party through the second American Revolution. That's how it happens. And, you know, the Democrats, right, who would otherwise dominate American politics, but for that second American Revolution, you know, they represented something more backwards. You know, so mm-hmm. again, the dialectics of history, it's very tricky. I know that there are leftists, especially British leftists, coincidentally mm-hmm. enough, but rather suspiciously. Tarek Ali says maybe it would have been better for the Confederacy to have won the Civil War. He says that, Tarek Ali. Speaking <laughs> of someone who supports Hamas. Why did he say that? What was his argument? Because... Um, Instead of one mega power imperialist behemoth, you would have divided the United States, and so the world wouldn't have been facing U.S. imperialism. Yeah. Well, wait a minute. I mean, at that time, it really wasn't facing U.S. imperialism anyway. Well, but it would have been killed in the egg, Doug, and that would have been good. Whereas, of course, you know, well, this that, is like um, going back in time to kill Hitler, I guess, right? It's is a little bit. Idea? It's a little bit. But the other thing is that I, I think you may or may not know this. One of the aims of the U.S. in the Civil War was to acquire Canada. I did not know that. Yeah, because Seward, right? Seward, Seward's Folly, Alaska. Mm-hmm. Um, so a couple of things. So one is that the British, you know, um, sided with the Confederacy tacitly. And uh, they owed reparations to the United States in the Civil War, the British. And Seward said, you can give us so many tens of millions of dollars or Canada. And they were like, yeah, we'll give you the money. Um, The other thing that Seward wanted to do, which he tried to do under Grant, who's a great, great president, by the way. And speaking of Native Americans, he's the one who appoints a Native American to the cabinet for the first time. Mm-hmm. So um, he tried to uh, have Haiti and the Dominican Republic join the United States. And why? Well, the left will tell you it's U.S. imperialism, but why did they really want to do it? They wanted majority black states to be added to the Union. Mm. And what's interesting is that in the Dominican Republic and Haiti, and I'm sure the left will pull their hair out and scream, they voted to join the Union. But the fucking Democrats stopped it in the U.S. from happening. Right. So the plan was Canada, Haiti, the Dominican Republic, right, get all of North America, get some majority black states added without any crazy crackers, any KKKers, Mm -hmm. right? That was the plan. And yeah, is it imperialism? Is it? The imperial presidency, definitely. Well, I mean, this is one of the tricky things about Marxism that I'm only, you know, at the age of 52, soon to be 53, Chris, coming up on the 22nd. I was 53 in September. Yeah. (laughs) We're both born Um, in 1970. Yeah. uh, uh, I'm just now kind of beginning to understand about about, uh, Marxism is that 
the aim is not simply to like, and I know this, you know, intellectually, like as a slogan, right. But mm -hmm. to understand it more fully, the aim is not to simply negate right. even capitalism, <clears throat> but to sublate or overcome capitalism, which, and, and one of the progressive aspects of capitalism, I think is that it brings masses of people together rather out of their provincialism, their localism into a mass social project. It is a socializing force itself, which means that even though the concentration of capital into monopoly powers, which then get uh, gets unevenly divided amongst the superpower, imperial powers oh, sure. in the world, despite that, that that happens, that, that at the same time is an opportunity yeah. as capital brings people together for through proletarian power to transform mm -hmm. all that Mm -hmm. uh, infrastructure and organization into a new social society, the polity, and a new polity, and a right, new polity right. as well. Because the U.S. What? as the city on the hill, the U.S. has been from the beginning, from its founding in 1776, the U.S. has been aiming to be the world republic. It has been aiming right. to be the world republic, and uh, you know now this Confederacy, on the other hand, check this out. What was their plan if they won the war? Their plan was to take over Central and South America and the Caribbean. Their, their plan was to create a slave republic that would unify all the slave countries of the Western Hemisphere. <laughs> and, and they very explicitly stated that, you know, this industrial capitalism that's coming and this labor problem, slavery could solve that too. They explicitly said, you know, these factory workers, they might be a problem. Why not have slaves work in the factories instead? So they had a plan for reinstituting slavery in the North. I don't think that would have worked. It doesn't quite work, but, but look, look around the world today. Globalized capitalism. There is virtual slavery. There is. Yeah. And it's yeah. industrial. Like, in other words, there are slaves essentially working in factories. That that exists, right? Yeah. And so I mean, it, it could but they are paid, but they are paid a wage, you know, those, yes. those and they and they don't they well, aren't the no, property. they could be kind of indentured servants. In other words, it is like that. I mean, look, the the illegal immigrants who are coming to the United States, they do have to pay off the human traffickers. They do, right? And they are right. sold essentially by the gang human trafficker operations to companies to work for them for basically nothing to pay off their debt. I just have this sort of religious conviction that the actual, that the only kind of, that commodities wouldn't exchange if, if you replaced. No, it's wage uh, slavery. I mean, there's a reason for that term. In other words, right. I'm just saying, you know, there's a dark side of this history. Right. And certainly, you know, why wouldn't it have worked? It would not have not worked because of something in the commodity form. It wouldn't have worked because the northern working class would have rebelled. Right. In other words, right. if the right. South. Okay. Yeah. I, I have this sort of technocratic abstract yeah, explanation. No, why it right? Would have, yeah. Right. Like if the South had won the Civil War, you might have had a socialist revolution in the United States. 
mm. in, in rebellion against the fucking slaveocracy. Which would be another reason why to, to wish that the... You yeah, know, but Tarek Lee never says that. In other words, there's a, there's, I mean, what we're dealing with on the left, Doug, is we got brain-dead people. They don't think past step one. And also no imagination, like zero imagination. Well, I want to stop there and pause it for a second, and then we can get into the imagination. Isn't there a Terry Bison novel, science fiction novel, alternative history of the U.S. with the slavery yeah. winning? And that's a great novel. I mean, you know, again... Not that long ago, people still had an imagination. Right. No, I think, right? I wonder if alternative, I, I never read that novel, but I was aware of it when it came out. I was working, trying to work as a science fiction writer, and I was made aware of that kind of thing. Um, but uh, uh, Nova I, Africa, I, Nova Africa I, right? So, I just think that these people that you're saying uh, don't go past step one, they all strike me as being very educated and learned and, and, Oh, well, education, uh, Doug, do it. can I tell you when I, when I start a class, a college yeah. class or a graduate class, and I say, okay, we're doing education, <laughs> meaning, you know, I know you guys think that you know what college is, and I think, you know, you guys know what grad school is, but guess what? You're in my class now. It's not going to be like that anymore. Like, in other words, you're actually going to be educated. You're not going to be educated. You know, I'm going to expect you to actually read things mm -hmm. and we are actually going to dig deep and dive into it. And, you know, your brain is going to come out the other side changed. So be well, ready. It, you this know? is what I experienced. <laughs> I mean, maybe not to a, as a great a degree as I might have, but when I went to Portland State University and majored in philosophy, it still I was had, that back then. It still was. Right. Education still existed. But it's it's really not there anymore. That's the crazy yeah, but thing. But Tariq Lee, he was educated in the Oh yeah. Well, like I like to say, the the boomers pretended everything started with them and they also want to end everything with them. They don't want anyone after them to get what they got. Really, they destroyed education. The boomers destroyed education. Okay, right. because we <laughs> now were you're sounding like that uncle who's going to get mugged at Thanksgiving. Explain, explain. Well, we we got educated by people who are boomers, but maybe older boomers, mm -hmm. and people older than the boomers were silent still generation. There. Yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. and you know, and I think that you know we got cultural revolution red guarded. You know, the '80s, the long march through the institutions. I think that you know, the kind of new left pedagogy, like pseudo egalitarian, like the class in which the professor comes in and says, basically nothing says, well, what do you do think of the readings? And doesn't right. really expect anyone to have done the readings. And there is, you know, they all do agree with Susan Sontag, the white race is the cancer of human history. They all do. They agree. And so they're like, yeah, you know, we know we're supposed to teach you these dead white guys, but we, you know, aren't they just patriarchal, racist, homophobes, whatever. And so we're not going to really take any of these ideas seriously, really. And yeah, I mean, I went to Hampshire College. I was taught Marx academically. I was. And my professors said, you know, Marx is a racist. Marx is a sexist. Marx is a homophobe. And Marx <laughs> is this and that. I mean, look, you know, you can see, you know, he's calling someone a faggot and he's saying a nigger and like, well, you know, he's saying about his, the people he doesn't like, he's saying all these things. And so, you know, what that means is 
you know, Marx is important. I guess you should know Marx, but, you know, don't take it too seriously because after all, he is a dead white man. I had the experience in college, and then we'll go to the topic. I had the experience when I was in university back in the 90s of going from the philosophy department mm. to the women's studies department. So oh, I took a class. Right. I took a class in philosophy and a number of them, and I enjoyed those. And I talked all the time, probably too much. And I was one of those guys, you know, with, you know the philosophy bro. You were that and, kid? Yeah, <laughs> kind of. Oh, my God. <laughs> of course you were, Doug. <laughs> I, I believe it or not, was not. Oh, you weren't. I was not um, that good. Well, I, I got it, you know, animated by the top. A little bit, but I kept it. I, I was always aware, okay, you don't want to be that kid. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> I was in philosophy class. But every philosophy student at that time at Portland State University, we weren't at a top-tier school. So this was our first uh, opportunity to, to in any way seem like an intellectual to anybody. We were going to take it, you know. So, um, You know, back and, then, though, Doug, there was still this idea of expanding education, meaning people with PhDs from the top research universities still taught at second-tier state schools. Right. right. And didn't consider it a professional humiliation. Right. In other no. words, they, they there was a mission. Right. The mission is that all these schools are going to offer a quality education. Right. And I had really good professors, especially in the philosophy department. Uh, they they were serious people who cared about philosophy, you know, and um, they weren't like overly serious people, uh, but they were intellectually engaged people and mm -hmm. um uh and i uh i uh, think about them sometimes not very often but peter nichols especially who was a really good professor there and died Colin young he's an impact you know i right. was thinking about how i haven't forgotten any name of any of my college professors and how remarkable that is because i forget people's names who i met yesterday yeah i remember all my College I think I remember most Byron Haynes, Peter Nichols. I remember the two that had the most influence on me. But and they were both great, fun, nerdy guys, and Byron Haynes especially. Um, but um, in any case, uh, I went from that to the women's studies department. I expected to be received there in a similar way. If I said something worthwhile, it would be taken up. If not, I would be shut down. That kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But no, I was I was one of the only men in the class, of course, and I spoke way too much. I was. Why are you talking? And um, you were and mansplaining. When I, was, I was, yeah, right I was mansplaining. But way back when I was mansplaining, <laughs> and and uh, I also like I was given a paper to write, and I decided to cite sources that were not. I was given the list of the sources I was supposed to cite. Oh, uh, paper, you know. Uh, and I just said, no, I'm not doing that, and I went off on my own to cite different sources. I, you know, who I cited is Gita Bohr over and over again. Gita Bohr. Uh. Um, <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, I got like an F. I got an F on the paper because I hadn't followed the instructions properly. That's whatever. That might be yeah. Portland State University. In other words, like uh, the tools for evaluation, you know, like they might have had to keep it simple, keep the grading rubric like straightforward, you know, in other words, like you know, make very precise assignments and then grade according to... You're not in the philosophy department, though. 
in the women's studies department, you know, well, in any department, but maybe the philosophy department, maybe they, they, they realized that wouldn't quite work for philosophy or something. I don't know. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I found in general, it really did look, the professors had the power to decide. It's hard to evaluate humanities courses though, and social sciences courses. And so, you know, I can imagine why professors, especially at a state school. At a, yeah. You're at defending your own here. Just, no, well, why they would be not so much lazy, but why they would want to cover their asses by having what would appear to be a non-arbitrary way of evaluating student work. Yeah. Yeah. Especially in the women's studies department. Anyway, right? it was, it was awful. It was. Yeah. It was no, awful. that's a bad experience anyway. Right. Yeah. 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 But um, the, my point is like, I understand what you mean by education, but yeah. when you say that these people are, don't think, I think Tarika Lee thinks, I think like, you know, these, Christopher Hedges thinks, you know, I, I believe it. I believe he does. They thought at some point in their lives, but they stopped. <laughs> they stopped. They okay. rest content on what they thought in the past. And what they thought in the past wasn't too great. You can see it in Noam Chomsky for sure. Mm -hmm. The last time he had a thought was that he developed that, you know, was new. I mean, I'm thankful to the millennial left because they did make me think. Yeah. Right. Um, you know, I think we've talked about this. I mean, I had kind of made up my mind about a lot of things and, you know, I haven't been like shaken in my convictions that I had from, a, you know, an earlier time. Um, but I my experience with the millennial left forced me to rethink things. Like, um, what did you rethink? Because I had to kind of reconstruct my own thinking. And in other words, I had to, you know, one of the things that we might talk about, like anti-imperialism, you know, I mean, that's, this is the thing, like our audience, they may not understand that I have the same knee jerk reactions to things that they do. Right. In other mm -hmm. words, I'm horrified by the same things that they're horrified by. And, you know, my default is to, you know, side with the subaltern and, you know, the oppressed and the weak and the poor, you know, and then I have to sort of stop myself and say, but I have a duty to perform. And my duty is to think critically. And because I know that the left is committing crimes all the time against the cause of socialism, I know that I can't just say, oh, well, I understand why people take whatever side and their heart's in the right place and, you know, I should forgive them. But it's like, no, 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 wait, how many hundreds of years are we going to go through this? Right? Mm -hmm. Like, I have a fucking duty to say no. You can't stay at that level. Yeah, and thanks for, for going down this road because this gets us to the topic. The 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 hardening your heart and thinking politically might have very good consequences, and not doing so might be having some very detrimental consequences. It struck me the other day that you know, the war in Ukraine and even this conflict between Palestine and, and Israel may have not been necessary if the, so the millennial left, if the socialist left or the boomers yeah. before them or the even us, the Gen Xers, had, had decided to make different political choices. Yes. Um, and that, that there was a... Uh, a reflexive impotence and powerlessness mm -hmm. that uh, is mm -hmm. taken for granted, but it gives you an excuse 
Mm-hmm. Um, and it and and you know I may have said something like that before, but it for a moment it it really occurred to me. Oh, there was actually actually a potential moment mm-hmm. there where yep. things were more open than we thought. And I don't I can't say what might have changed exactly, but what do you think that moment was? And 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 why wasn't it taken up? What why did the millennial left go the way it did? And what could we have expected otherwise? Well, I mean, okay, so it's a complicated question because I think there's no reason why we can't re, be, re rebuild, begin again, rebuild a socialist little movement. Mm-hmm. But there's a lot of historical inertia behind us now, you know, a hundred years basically, of the left developing ways of adapting to the status quo and avoiding that task. So starting already in the 20s, really in the 30s though, with the Popular Front, there is this idea of we got to fight the right now first mm-hmm. before we can do anything else. Right? We have to stop fascism in the 1930s before we can even think about struggling for socialism. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right? And uh, that's when the left had some power. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, now, so, that was a tactical decision, though, when they did have power. That wasn't reflexive. It was not. No, it was well, it was strategic. It was. It's. It's a very complicated thing because it satisfied needs both domestically in the Soviet Union and elsewhere. It satisfied political needs in various countries. You know, like France is the classic Popular Front country, but you know, England, the United States. Um, you know, the the. You know the Nazis had already come to power in in Germany, and the fascists had come to power earlier in Italy. Um, but basically, you know, the Popular Front against war and fascism. You know, um, it was, but it was elaborated. In other words, because they were dealing with a movement, and they were dealing with a movement that's not stupid. In other words, with all sorts of workers and intellectuals who knew something about like history and Marxism and socialism, they had to sell it, and they sold it plausibly. In other words, millions of people were convinced, yeah, this is the right thing to do. Um, And only very few people, like Trotskyists, some left communists, the Frankfurt School, were like, ah, no, this isn't going to work. Right? But the vast majority of, like, communists and social democrats and progressive liberals basically accepted the view of history that the Stalinists promoted. When did the Frankfurt School object to the popular front? Oh, from the beginning, you know, from from the get-go, right? So um, Popular Front is 1935. Okay, and when did the Frankfurt School start around that time? Oh, no, Frankfurt, well, the Institute for Social Research started in the 20s. Yeah. And then Horkheimer became director around 1930. Okay. Um, And, you know, they were they already knew that something had gone wrong, obviously. I mean, something clearly had gone wrong, meaning the social Democrats and the communists were divided. Mm-hmm. The second and third international were divided. And that battle that began during World War One and in the revolutions after World War One was was not resolved. It's not like the social Democrats prevailed or the communists prevailed. 
It remained kind of frozen through the 1930s. And the communist movement developed on the basis of emerging Stalinism. In other words, it, it developed on the basis of adapting to a non-revolutionary period. You know, um, and, you know, this the second period is what it's called. Mm-hmm. And then you get third period Stalinism, where the idea is that the uh, Great Depression is going to be the opportunity to get back on a revolutionary footing. But when the Nazis take power, then they're like, oh, wait, we, we didn't call that right. Right. Really, what we have to do is defend liberal democracy and the gains of the working class in capitalism against emerging fascism. Mm-hmm. Seems very plausible. Seems very plausible. The problem is, is that when people try to apply that to like Reagan, it's like, come on. No. You know, Reagan is not Hitler. And yet, of course, he was, wasn't he? Right. So this is, you know. Well, no one thinks that Reagan was Hitler now. They did a few they of did them then. at the time, but that's <laughs> right. when it matters. Right? <laughs> right. In other words, yeah. you think in 20 years people are gonna think Trump was Hitler? No. But no, they, they don't anymore now. now. They don't even think it now. Okay. Well, they may I not think... think it now. They thought it in 2016 and 2020. Right. I don't know. Next year, what well, just wait, Doug, because they're gonna remind themselves that he's Hitler, right? They're gonna be like, oh wait, 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 wait. Uh, uh, right? Yeah. And they'll say everything like apparently progressive about him is actually what makes him a fascist. So you're saying that that popular front was a major defeat for socialist left. It was a major error and defeat. And it was born out of the defeat uh, of the, and the split in the, in the international yes. socialist movement uh, right. that started in World War I. And, and mm-hmm. um, okay, so, so yeah, the, the, I mean, you can, the natural reflexive move is to say, but whoa, wait a minute. You're saying that the, that we, that shouldn't, they shouldn't have united against Hitler. You're saying that, you know, in, in fact, isn't the usual critique that they didn't unite quickly enough to, to come back? The critique. That's right. So it's kind of in retrospect, the popular front is seen as the wise course of action from the get go without mm-hmm. understanding why it would not have been possible or desirable in the 20s. I mean, what I'd say about this, because, you know, I know that you you want to talk about, like, the missed opportunity and what building a socialist movement would look like. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so we started with Thanksgiving. Well, we are. Thanksgiving. We yeah, are. We're getting, we're... we're getting there. So let me just say that, you know, I, I talked about the second founding and, you know, sometimes the Civil War is called the Second American Revolution. And mm-hmm. so there's a revolutionary party, the Republican Party, mm-hmm. right? Abolitionism was a revolutionary movement. And the 1848 emigres from Europe who fled to the United States are active in the Republican Party, the Germans mm-hmm. especially. That's why Marx has a connection to the Republican Party. It's why he's publishing in the Republican Party newspaper, the National Republican Party newspaper. It's distributed, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and you know, why Lincoln has to rely on a lot of junior officers who are German emigres, the red, their red 48ers to win the war actually. Mm. And also to, uh, prosecute, uh, or execute, uh, reconstruction right under grant. It's mm-hmm. same, same cadre, right? There is a cadre. It's a revolutionary party and the, the growth of that party 
itself hastened the revolutionary crisis, the growth of the Republican Party. So that's one way to think about it, right? Is that people are like, oh, well, revolution's not on the agenda. So what are you talking about starting a socialist party that's revolutionary? You know, isn't that that just doesn't fit our circumstance? Yeah, but that's that's completely economy. Well, it's deterministic whether or not it's voluntaristic or e economistic. It doesn't. It's all sorts of things. It's it's based on a political estimation. Whereas my point is, mm -hmm. would be because this is not only true in places that were undemocratic like Russia and Germany, but it's also true in France. You know, I always like to point out Jean Jaurès, the leader of the French Socialist Party, who's like a kind of heterodox Marxist, not an orthodox Marxist, but he's something of a Marxist. He's assassinated right at the start of World War One because it's understood if this guy's around, we're going to have a problem, hmm. meaning he might launch a revolution against this war. Hmm. Right. So the existence of these parties itself is a political crisis for capitalism. In other words, the building of a socialist party brings the revolution forward. Right. So it, it creates the revolutionary situation. So it's not hmm. like you know, oh, you build this party and then you wait for the revolution to happen. No, no. building the party actually creates a situation in society and in the political sphere, mm -hmm. right? You elect people, ultimately you elect people who will vote no on everything. And that destabilizes capitalist politics, it does. Um, you know, it, you know, it's impossible to understand the growth of progressivism in the United States apart from the growth of the socialist party, mm -hmm. right? And the fact that the populist movement splits, part of it goes into capitalist progressivism and part of it goes into socialism, right? That's Debs versus um, William Jennings Bryan, mm -hmm. right? I come out of the same movement, go in two different directions, capitalist reform, socialist revolution. And the growth of the Socialist Party is part of what shakes up the two capitalist parties, the Republican Party and the Democratic Party. Certainly Lenin thought so. If you read what he wrote about the 1912 American election, he says uh, the split in the Republican Party between Theodore Roosevelt and Taft is a result of the growth of the Socialist Party, mm -hmm. which is true. And also brings, brings the Democrats out of the wilderness with Woodrow Wilson. Right. He takes advantage of that split in the Republican Party. Which then the Republicans are reconsolidated and then they have to wait until FDR, you know, almost. Uh, what is it? 15 years later. That a mm -hmm. Democrat is elected next. And so it's that should not be discounted. You know, in other words, there's a there's actually a strategy here that we can learn from history to develop a strategy. And the strategy is that at a social level in civil society and at a political level, you bring about the crisis of capitalism, the revolutionary crisis of capitalism by building a socialist movement, actually. Why aren't any of the parties that call themselves socialists now building up? Because there are some socialist parties, right? There's a freedom a socialist party or whatever there's a, oh you mean uh, the sects that's different you mean the united states i thought you were going to talk about like internationally there are these parties. no no i okay you're internationally they are as well that's but true. they're they're holdovers of the earlier compromises right 
and they're they're all basically popular front parties right meaning the communist parties and socialist parties that exist are popular front parties including the insurgent parties like the maoist parties in like nepal or the philippines or uh india you know people will like to point to these things and it's like these are still popular front parties mao's party that takes power in china is a popular front party they really wanted to be the junior partners of chiang kai-shek they didn't really want to take power at all mm -hmm. right and then they they were oh, wait so what is a, a popular front it, the popular front was we need to fight fascism first and yeah. align with capitalist well let's put it this way so in europe fight fascism first in mm -hmm. china fight imperialism first mm. Okay, let's prioritize the anti-imperialist struggle in the de, in the post-colonial world or the colonial world. Let's let's fight for decolonization first, and that's the trap right there. That's because it never goes beyond that. In other words, that's when the socialists and communists become the dispensable junior partners, supporters of the capitalists, but in the name of fighting fascism or fighting imperialism in the name of anti-imperialism or anti-fascism. And that's, of course, the rationale for why the left supports the Democrats in the United States. They support the Democrats as the less imperialist and less fascist party, right? The Republicans mm -hmm. are seen as- I think that's very questionable even on those grounds, but okay. It is questionable, I mean, but historically, like basically people will say, well, you know, the Democrats and the Republicans, not much difference between them, but if you had to choose, of course, the Republicans are more imperialist and more fascist. In other words, to call the Democrats the imperialist country, uh, party, you know, they are the imperialist party. My old comrades of the Spartacist League, they used to say the Democrats are the party of racism and war. Right. Right. Like, in other words, they historically were the ones who did these wars. Um, now, a little bit of fudging there. But, um, you know, but I don't know, World War One, World War Two, Korea, Vietnam, mm -hmm. right? Looks but not Iraq. Not Iraq, right, but that's what's controversial, right? Um, that's why it's the neocons, because, wait, aren't the uh, Republicans supposed to be isolationist and not adventuristic? But, you know, but the neocons, so the Reagan revolution, this is another thing, the Reagan revolution all the factions of the Reagan coalition actually are defectors from the Democrats. So they get the Dixiecrats, of course. People know that story. What they don't know, the mm -hmm. neoliberals are defectors from the Democrats. Mm -hmm. The Christian evangelicals are defectors from the Democrats. They were a constituency of the FDR New Deal coalition. And they, not just Dixiecrats, but also just... No, the Midwestern evangelical Christians, right? Mm -hmm. And the neocons. The neocons are from the Democrats, too. Hmm. So it makes sense that they would all go back to the Democratic Party, sure. as they're doing now. Sure. Well, the Democratic Party is the majority party in the U.S. since FDR. The Republicans are the loyal opposition. And so people need to keep their eye on the ball. If you want to know what party is in charge of American capitalism? Because this is the thing. The Popular Front will tell you, no, it's the Republicans. They're the party of Wall Street, right? And the Democrats are the party of Main Street. 
No. No, no, no. And again, you can have all the evidence in the world, it doesn't matter, because people will say, yeah, but in a pinch, aren't the Republicans worse? And it's like, but wait, the Democrats run everything. They run everything. I mean, they run most of the states, all the big cities. Mm -hmm. They run the United States. You know, they really do. And they have since FDR. And, yeah, and, all, and the media is all Democrat. Yeah, the media is, and now the state bureaucracy is. And the state bureaucracy has been largely anyway. I would say that certain holdouts of the state bureaucracy, like this deep state, mm -hmm. were traditionally more Republican, like the CIA. Mm -hmm. And Department of Homeland Security? Yeah, That's FBI. Mm -hmm. Yeah, mm -hmm. FBI a little bit also. But, you know, really, if you think about it, actually – there's a case to be made that both the FBI and the CIA are, of course, products of the Democrats, Wilson and FDR, <laughs> you know, and Truman. So, you know, it's like, well, but I guess, you know, they're the WASPy people. They're the people who recruited from the Ivy Leagues, whatever, you know. And so because, you know, the big dream of the left is that you could have the Democratic Party, but get rid of the patricians. You could get rid of like the rich white people in the Democratic Party, except not all of them, because some of them are progressive. So you want to keep those. It's a it's a big mess, right? The whole the whole conception, but it has to do with the Stalinist sophistry going back to the 30s, which is that you look at the ruling class and you decide in the ruling class who are progressive and who are reactionary. <laughs> you divide mm -hmm. between the progressive bourgeoisie and the reactionary bourgeoisie. And you say, yeah, we have to overthrow all of them. But the reactionary bourgeoisie are worse. So we should defend the progressive bourgeoisie against the reactionary bourgeoisie. And how do you determine who's the progressive and who's a reactionary? That's why I said it's sophistry. Um, well, you know, finance capital is reactionary. Industrial capital is progressive, for one. Productive capital versus parasitic, right, Fictive capital versus yeah. real capital. Real capital is progressive. Fictive capital is reactionary. All this yeah, shit. You, you, know, can't, you can't do that shit. But They're not separate. This is why I, you know, this is why I, go, I mean, everything that I say on these podcasts and everything that I write, there are reams of paper and shelves of books behind everything that I say, meaning like, right. I know where all this stuff comes from. And when I say deliberately provocative things, and when I say, no, it's not that, it's this. It's because I these arguments, these debates have been going on for a hundred years and going nowhere. Right. Right. So, so and they are political ultimately in nature. All of this stuff, all the analyses of capitalism, they are just propaganda bullshit to serve a politics. That's all that it's ever been since the 30s. See, okay, this is I'm I want to talk to you about that in the in the neck in the Patreon, because that's a oh. my old my own little you know, the eccentric defense of climate is coming later. I'm going to put no, that. I mean, climate actually knows that at some level, by the way, because he's a dissident. He's a Marxist humanist, right? He's right. a dissident. Um, but, but the parameters of the discourse, the parameters of the debates, he accepts as, as given by history. Yeah. Well, 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 I'm going to ask you a question about that later, but, yeah. but to, to stay with the millennial left. So it, there was an opportunity around the war. Mm -hmm. primarily because i this is something where you and i have a different view but i I'm, i think but it's not it's not like i i you know, committed to this view, view is this which is that the left has its narrative and you generally accept the left narrative 
And I generally accept the left narrative too, except again, I pinch myself. I discipline myself. The duty I have to perform is to say as plausible. And I want to agree with the left narrative of history, but wait a second. Well, my, my, right? my, so I only want, about this, Chris, it but like, my, my I, thing is I, take I see the Marxism coming up after uh -huh. 2008. You uh -huh. see it coming out after the, the, uh, late into the war in Iraq. Yeah. Um, and so yeah, there's our imperialism out of anti right. I see it and right. And I see like the anti capitalism emerging, like or, or Marxism as right. a kind of anti capitalism emerging after right. 2008, which wasn't anti imperialist or anti fascist. It was, I, see, I thought you were going to argue with me about something else because I know that you and I have argued over like the rationales for both the Afghanistan and Iraq wars. Oh, and no, my, no. My only point there is to say. Yes, the capitalist state lies. Yes, their rationales are bullshit. But maybe they're actually less of a lie and less bullshit than the left. Okay. Because, uh, yeah, I wasn't going to do that. I was just going to say. Because the left's own rationale might actually serve a more rotten purpose. Right? In other oh. words, you know, because it ultimately is a justification for all this, like, popular front-style politics. Mm. Right. And so to say, oh, you know, well, the war is really about geopolitical this or oils, oil resources that or, you know, neocon, whatever the other thing. And, you know, and I'm just like, well, it actually is important for us to start with what the cal capitalist politicians say. And the reason for that is that, of course, that's what the public supports or opposes them on that basis. In other words, the capitalist politicians are not supported or opposed on the basis of some convoluted leftist reasoning. They're not. They're they're basically the public says what are they saying and who do I agree with? So you have to start there. Because that is like where the public sphere is taking place. And yes, you can punch holes in it. You know, you mentioned Chris Hedges and you mentioned Noam Chomsky and you can have a manufacturing consent and you can have an ad busters like, oh, look at the lies and all this stuff. And it's like, yeah, but you know what? It, let's say the whole world is run on lies. Well, that means for that very reason, you have to pay attention to the lies <laughs> and you have to take <laughs> the lies seriously because if the whole world is being run on lies, then you can't afford to ignore it. Right. Well, I mean, look there, you can't say and the philosopher, you... the philosopher in me wants to say, if the whole war world is run on lies, then in fact, and that's it, why we should overthrow it. No, no, <laughs> no, no. Then, the, then, they, then, it, then, then the lies are no longer lies or truths because ah, they're, right. they're material reality that, right. that point, you know, so that's the Marxist in you, not the philosopher in you. If you enjoyed this conversation, please do consider supporting us on Patreon. Our patrons help to make sure that Sublation Media can continue to provide interviews, videos, books, and articles that are critical of the left from the left. If you are tired of remaining stuck within bourgeois ideologies and politics, help us sublate them both.